I am Karan Bhatia, and this is Ask the Experts. We have a great group of guests, as always, but before we get into that, thoughts and prayers up for Errol Spence Jr. He was involved in a car accident. The latest reports are looking okay. It says Errol did not sustain any broken bones or fractures. He has some facial lacerations, but he is expected to make a full recovery. Also, Thoughts and prayers to James Ali Bashir. He's the trainer of Ivana Habazin, who was a guest on the previous episode. There was an altercation at the weigh-in. James Ali Bashir was taken to the hospital. He was released, but then he was sent back due to brain bleed. And he is in his advanced age. So thoughts and prayers to him. I emailed with Ivana. She said, I hope it's okay. It's really bad. I haven't heard confirmed latest reports, but I've heard that James is texting people. He's he's hopefully back to sorts now. I sent him a note and, and he did text back. So let's hope that he is able to also make a full recovery. With that said, let's talk about today's show. Speaking of someone who put themselves in danger, went through some wars. His nickname was The Gladiator and that's for a reason. John Molina and he has decided to call it a career. He fought everybody in the division. He fought Adrian Broner, Terrence Crawford, Ruslan Pravonikov, Lucas Matisse, on and on and on. He has a very impressive resume. You know what's more impressive? The way he fought. He was an ultimate come-forward fighter. He never shied away from the challenge, and he's calling it a day, and he's going to share why. He's going to share some great war stories from over the years, his motivation for retiring, and he's going to talk about what is next for him. After that, I will be speaking to Marcos Villegas. We just had the Errol Spence versus Sean Porter fight. It was very, very competitive. It was a tough fight, and it was very, very hard to judge. You did not want to be a judge that night because there were very close rounds. Well, Marcos was actually the unofficial scorer for the broadcast, and we're going to talk to him about his process. How do you score uh, such a close fight? We're also going to look back at the fight in general and in Spence Porter. We're going to look back at Golovkin Derevichenko. And I'm going to get Marcus's picks for the biggest fights this year. And I asked him how it was on the other end of some interviews that went wrong. He interviewed Keith Thurman, who went off on him uh, for saying that he felt that Pacquiao beat Jeff Horn. Marcos also had the rough and contentious interview with Angel Garcia, father of Danny Garcia, who can always be outspoken, and he kind of went off on Marcos. So I asked him, what is it like to be on the other side of that? And we, we spoke about more topics in the world of boxing in my wide-ranging interview with Marcus. After that, we just had the Anthony Durrell versus David Benavidez scrap. That was on the undercard of Spence Porter. It was a fantastic fight, but a cut opened up over Anthony Durrell's I, he could not continue. And there was a man who made that decision. His name is Javon Sugar Hill. He's the nephew of the great Emmanuel Stewart. And he had to make that tough decision to throw in the white flag and say, my fighter cannot continue. And I will be speaking to Sugar Hill. I'm going to ask him why he made that decision, how tough it is to make a decision like that. We're going to look back at the fight and we're going to see who Anthony Durrell wants to fight next. In the conversation for someone that Darrell wants to fight next is the guy he fought before, and that's Avni Yildirim from Turkey. And we're going all the way to Turkey to chat with Avni Yildirim and his manager. I'm going to ask him about his fight with Anthony Darrell. I'm going to ask him about what he wants. Does he want to fight David Benavidez? Does he want to fight Anthony Darrell? And actually, Avni's promoter is going to announce Avni's next fight and opponent. It was a candid conversation with Avni Yildirim, and you're going to want to hear that. 
My last guest of the episode is Jay Chowdhury. He's an award-winning filmmaker. He's an ambitious uh, guest, and he's trying to grow the sport of boxing. He's trying to do that by shaking it up a little bit. He feels like promotion and boxing is kind of stuck in the dark ages, right? The marketing, they're not taking advantage of social media and other new age channels the way they should be. So he actually is creating a documentary about this and, and did a social experiment during the last fight. So we're going to ask him about how that experiment went, what he found out, and how he hopes to grow the sport of boxing. So without further ado, let's get to my first guest. He had a 13-year professional career, 39 pro fights. He challenged for a world title on numerous occasions, and now he's finally hanging it up, and that deserves to be celebrated, and we should look back at, at some of those wars. We should talk about the, the stories of, of going up the ranks. So here is my conversation with John, the gladiator, Molina. I am Karan Bhatia. And let's ask the experts. I am Karan Batia for the Ask the Experts podcast, talking to John Molina. John, you just fought on September 28th on the undercard of Spence Porter against uh, Jose Cito Lopez. Um, the fight didn't go your way, but much more importantly, you made the decision to call it a career. So first of all, congratulations on your career. Um, you were, you're 36 years old, you were, you're 13 years as a professional. So was it tough to, to make that decision to walk away from the sport? Uh, most definitely. First and foremost, you're a fighter, but, um, it was tough in that regard, but it, it made it very much easy being, being the fact that I have a beautiful family that I want to enjoy after all my hard work in the professional game. And what, what went through your mind? You know, was it, was this something you'd been thinking about recently, the uh, the last few years? Was it after the the Lopez fight? What what this, what kind of was the catalyst for you to say, okay, that's it, I'm done? Um, I believe it was a it was a matter of um, mentally in in the fight, I seen everything I wanted to accomplish and see everything I wanted to do, but I couldn't physically pull the trigger. So, um, I've I've been in that position before, and I wanted to go into a slugfest. And I felt like my body wasn't up for the task. I don't know if that makes sense, but you you like felt that you you felt mentally you could keep going. Your body wasn't uh, supporting what you wanted to do mentally, and, and you knew all along that when that time came, it was time to kind of walk away. Especially at that level, absolutely, because this is a very dangerous game, and I have a beautiful family who I want to enjoy. I want to keep my, uh, you know. I want to be able to enjoy and have a healthy life with them. And, and being boxing is such a dangerous sport, especially in, in those recent times we've had some, um, you know, some unfortunate outings, you know, with, with fighters that passed away. We're not, we're not in there having a debate. We're not in there, you know, playing catch. We're in there fighting. 100%. And I think one thing that was, that was great about your career is that you were always come forward. You, you literally were a warrior, a gladiator. You left everything on the line always gave the fans their money, money's worth. Um, did you feel, you know, against Lopez on, on September 28th, you know, he, he caught you early um, and, and he was obviously landing some shots, which land, uh, which ended in the stoppage. Did you feel he was, he was tougher than you expected early on in that fight? I don't want to really get into that because I don't want to discredit Lopez. I think he's a great fighter. But I think it was all me. I don't think it was what he did. It's it's hard to explain at being a fighter, but 
again, he came out on top because, you know, he did what he did that night. He did what he had to do. But it wasn't Lopez. It was bigger than that. It was just my body not responding. That, and and that's, please, that's... Please make sure you reiterate that that's not degrading or, or taking away from what Lopez accomplished that night because he's a great fighter. 100%, and, and that's totally understandable. That that makes a lot of sense. So just looking back at, at your career, I mean, I was looking through your resume, and it's, it's literally like a who's who at, you know, 140, welterweight. It's, 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 you fought the, the best fighters. Um, it, when, when you look back, what, what was the most memorable uh, fight for you? Now, you? We know the Mickey Bay comeback when you were losing the fight and knocked him out in the last round. We know the war uh, fight of the year 2014 with Matisse. Uh, you took on Terrence Crawford, who's now at the top of the sport. So when you look back at all the great fights you had, what was the most memorable for you? Wow, it's kind of hard to put a, a, a finger on it. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the victory over Peronikov being an 11 to 100 dog. I enjoyed that victory. Uh, the Mickey Bay victory. I was, uh, I enjoyed that fight. Uh, what the world doesn't know is that I took that fight on 33 days notice. Wow. And, um, it, it was, uh, it was that, that fight has a, a, a huge story behind it. It was, my back was against the wall. Um, and I had to prove to the world that it wasn't a hiccup, the loss that I had against, uh, Andre Klimov who was a great fighter. I don't like to disrespect any fighter, but I was supposed to win that fight. And then I fought on Mickey Bay, supposed to be his coming out party. That that time when I fought Mickey Bay, it was his, he was the biggest um, prospect in the Mayweather camp at that point. And so we, we kind of derailed that that train, and that was a great fight for me. And, and just in that Mickey Bay fight, you know, it's, it's one thing, it's, it's common in boxing to say, okay, I'm down on the scorecards, I need a knockout to win, right? Every trainer in the, in the last round is saying that. It's one thing to say that, and then a completely different thing to actually do it, right? To be losing big time on the scorecards and come back with a knockout. So what, what clicked in you in that last round? Did, was, it, was it mental? Was it physical? Was it both? What, what, what happened in that last round where, where you had to go for the knockout to win there? It was literally um, coming down the, the fight in the, the opening uh, seconds in that round. He actually hurt me to the body. If you watch back, he hurt me to the body, and I grabbed a hold of him. And in my mind, uh, it triggered and said, "I'm not going to go out like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on my shield if, if, if need be. If we're going to fight, we're going to throw down." So I noticed that he kept he was keeping his uh, his right hand a little low, and he was dipping his head when he was coming in. So I knew if I threw a short left hook, I would catch him. So uh, I snapped a jab off of his face, and um, I threw a little bit of a, a left hook and landed right on his chin. It was a little six-inch left hook, but it was hard. And I knew he was gone after that shot because his whole body fell forward, and he had no control of his body. He was like on autopilot, if you will. And then I, I, I literally looked at the clock and saw that there was a minute left when I looked up, and I said, it's either now or never. And I threw everything and the kitchen seat twice. So... Um, I was looking at Draculich, either you're going to stop this fight or I'm going to kill this kid, and he stopped it. That's, that's an incredible story and an incredible fight and come from behind win. The other, you know, like, like I mentioned, the fight of the year in 2014 against Lucas Matisse, who's, who's one of the hardest punchers in boxing. You guys traded knockdowns, multiple knockdowns. Um, at the end of the day, uh, Matisse, you know, won by knockout, but 
I've heard you say in the past that that was actually one of your proudest moments. And right, that's interesting that, a, that a, one of your proudest moments was, was in a loss, but it was such a courageous effort. Is that still true? Is that one of your proudest moments is, uh, looking back? Most definitely. You, you have to remember that um, you have to remember my whole career, I was never given an easy path. So when I fought Lucas Matisse, that was my first fight at 140, you know, so, and at that time, Matisse was the man at, at, at 140, the killer, if you will. I think he had like 33 wins, 30 by knockout or some, some, something like that. So when I came into that fight, I knew what it was. I knew what they were trying to, I guess, feed me, if, if you will, to, to the next guy. Right. And um, when we got into the fight, you know, in the beginning of the fight, everyone was like, oh, it's going to be a killing. You know, Matisse is a killer. Molina's coming up and wait to fight at 140. But I knew once he felt my power, it would be a different ball game. In the first round, I cracked him with the right hand, I believe, and it really got his attention. The second round, I dropped him, and then he knew he was in a fight. And then it was one of those things. See, that's the moment I'm talking about. Going back and engaging Matisse into a war, my body was ready, ready willing, and able to go. Now, to, to get myself into a war with, with Lopez, which I believe we should have been in, my body was uh, was hesitating a little bit. Not mentally. Mentally, I was there. I wanted to. Right. But physically, I couldn't pull the trigger. Uh -huh. So at that point, I knew that at that level, if I can't call on what's got me, what's carried me my whole career, which is my heart, my will to win, and my punch, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle every fight. No, no, 100%. And I've heard you say you heard a lot of no's before you heard Yes, and it's almost like that's that can be that can be said two ways in terms of your fighting style, right? You never gave up and you always went for it, but also in terms of getting the matchups and the fights that you wanted, right? So why do you think that was? Why was it more difficult for you to sometimes get the the bigger names fights that you wanted? Well, I think uh, risk versus reward. You got to remember this is a business as well, and in the boxing community, we all know each other. And everyone knows that I hit like a ton of bricks and my will to win and I'm always going to be in the fight and it takes one mistake and I'll get you out of there. Now, uh, in the beginning of my career, my name wasn't worth what it was towards the end of my career. So, you know, if you can take an easier fight against a less uh, dangerous opponent, why call on John Molina when you can take someone else and get them out of there? Where if you fight John Molina, you make a mistake and he lands, it's going to be over. So I believe that was, you know, one aspect of it. It could be the business aspect of boxing. But the other is um, I don't think people were too crazy to fight me. I don't think people were too excited to fight me. Right. No, they, they definitely were not excited to fight you because of your come-forward style, your, your kind of give-everything-gladiator attitude. Um, the, the one fight I, I always wanted to ask you about, um, was against Antonio DeMarco in 2012. Uh, it was a quick first-round stoppage. You didn't go down in that fight, but the ref waved it off. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that stoppage because, like we said, you, you didn't go down, um, but the referee stopped it in the first round. What did you, what did you make of that? Well, that, that, was a, that was my learning experience. That fight was uh, my first fight on the big stage. It was for the WBC title against someone like Antonio DeMarco, who was a great fighter. And... Um, the reason why I didn't go down is because I didn't feel I was hurt. That was a lack of inexperience on my part. Had I known, you know, then what I know now, I would have taken me, lost the round, 
and I, I guarantee you that if I would have been at war, given both of us where we were at and what our heart and our will to win would, would be. But it, it, it proved itself in the Matisse fight and it showed that that fight, that punch really didn't hurt me. I just, it was a lack of experience. I didn't know to take a knee at that point. Right. I should have taken a knee because I thought, okay, he's hitting me and I was protecting myself. And my inexperience was telling me, okay, don't go down because you're not hurt. And then before I knew it, they waved it off. And as the ref should have waved it off because it looked like he was wailing on me. So it makes sense. His job is to protect you. But, um, yeah, no, no. It was just a lack of inexperience. Um, but it was a learning experience. Remember, I only had 22 amateur fights. Absolutely. And, and during that fight, the great Jim Lampley, one of the things he said as, you know, DeMarco was coming on and then, and then you were kind of coming back before, you, before it was stopped. And he said, here comes Molina coming back the only way he knows how, swinging hard with that right hand. Um, and I'm sure you, you take pride in that, right? Because you're not a, you were never a fighter to hold or run, right? You were, you were a fighter. If you were in trouble, you were going to come back by, by swinging hard. Absolutely. I was going to, I, I lived that experience in my mind as a kid all my life that I was behind in the fight. I was going down and I came back, came from behind and I won. I literally dreamed about that. It played over and over in my head when I was 10 years old. Very specifically, I can remember uh, reacting, um, not reacting, but acting out the Matisse fight, or not the Matisse fight, the Mickey Bay fight before I even knew it was going to happen. So it, it's kind of weird to, 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 to say that now, but thinking back on my career, I lived every fight before it even happened in my own head, in my fantasy, if you will. This is what I wanted to do since I was a kid, be a fighter. And when I, when I was given the opportunity, I took it as far as I could. Absolutely. And, and when you look back at your great career, I mean, do you have any regrets, anything that you would have done differently when you look back? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't been uh, removed that far yet, but um, no, man. I think everything happened the way it was supposed to. I provided a beautiful life for my family because of boxing. I remember starting boxing at 18 years old, thinking, "Man, am I really that good? Can I really make it to that level where it's going to become my occupation to be a fighter?" I mean, because that's if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, not a lot of fighters make it to a level where they're better than a club fighter unless you're you're given the olympic uh you have the olympic um background the pedigree you've been doing it since you're eight years old right remember i started at 18 years old so i had to take the uh the crash course in boxing <laughs> and uh, i had to take the clip notes and, and figure it out no that's that's really interesting and i think the fact that you were figuring things out through your career you know things like you said taking a knee and and things like that. It, it's really interesting. And, and that happens when you start late. And the fact that you started at 18 years old and achieved what you did is, is really amazing. You, you uh, challenged for a world title a couple of times, I believe two times, um, but it was elusive, right? It is a world title. It's hard to get. Does, it, does any, um, did any disappointment in that, you know, and not being able to, to get the world title, or, or are you just happy that you were able to challenge for one? Most definitely very uh, um, upsetting. But water under the bridge, uh, I look at my family, I look at my life, I look at everything I have, and to harp on something like that is petty in comparison to my beautiful family, my, my daughters, my wife, the lifestyle that I was able to provide for my family because of boxing. 
that's far more better than winning the world title. Um, would I have wanted to win the world title? Absolutely. Of course, you don't think I want to be a six-year-old man carrying around that title. So that's what I did. I was the best in the world at one point. I got up to number one in the world. I got all the regional titles. I got the interim title. I just never had the world title. So, yes, in my heart, I'll probably go to the grave thinking, damn, I wanted to be a world champion. But in the grand scheme of things, when I look back at my life, I provided a beautiful life for my family. My daughters have everything they want. I have a beautiful roof over my head. I'm financially secured because of boxing. So I'm proud of what what I've accomplished for starting at 18 years old. So I I don't want to harp on, oh, I should have won a world title. Oh, I should have got that. Or I should have did that. Life's too short to worry about the, the small things. 100% 100% and and you, you know, entertained the fans. Uh, every fight you were in, it was something that me as a fan and I'm sure others wanted to tune in because of your your heart and the, and the way you fought. So looking, you know, looking at the sport now, um, we, we talked about you being in some, some wars there and we talked about fighter safety a little bit earlier. Is there anything that, that you would suggest, you know, someone who was in there um, the way you were uh, to make our sport safer? Is there anything that you would say, hey, this is something that needs to be changed? Yes and no. It's just a brutal, dangerous sport as it is. I mean, there was times where I would go to pride sites and I would look, sit there ringside and say, damn, is this what I do? Because it sounds brutal. And I had reporters that have been in the game for 30 years telling me that they had to turn away during the Matisse fight with me and Matisse because it sounded too brutal and it was too gruesome what we were doing to each other. They said it sounded like watermelons exploding every time we, every time we hit each other. And um, it is a very brutal sport, but if for one second any young fighter out there thinks, ah, maybe I shouldn't do this because I might get hurt, you better stop now. Because if you ever have that thought in your mind, please, any fighter, any young man that's fighting, you do not belong in this sport. That is my number one rule from all the years of fighting that I believe makes sense about boxing. If you for any second have any doubt in your mind, if you're afraid of death in that ring, you do not belong in that ring at all whatsoever. And if you don't have that attitude, you do not belong. And if you do have that attitude, sign me up to fight that guy because he's going to be easy to break. (laughs) And the perfect example is this. Perfect example is right here. My third pro fight, it was at the Orleans in Vegas, I believe. I could be wrong third or fourth. I, 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 it's, been, it's been such a long time, and I've taken numerous punches to the head. <laughs> so with that being <laughs> said, we're at the Orleans, and uh, we're at a fight. When you're a small-time guy coming up, you guys kind of share a dressing room. You don't get your own dressing room until you get up in the game and start becoming a co-main and main event. So we're sharing a dressing room, yep. and I'm getting ready to fight. And uh, I watched a kid that I was sharing the dressing room with. He comes in, he's just mangled, bloody nose, cut on his face, cut on his forehead, cut on his eyes. And I looked at him, and the look on my face was a look of fear. And I'm staring stuck at this man, looking at him, thinking, oh, shit. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm looking at this man, and no more than five seconds later, <laughs> I feel a big smack right in the back of my head. Boom, I hit on top of my head, and it hurt so bad. I looked at this guy like, who the hell hit me? It was my father. And he said, if I ever see that look on your face again, we will never come here again, and we will never fight again. He said, look at that man right there, and that is the reality of our sport. 
this can happen to you. If you're not okay with that, pack your stuff up and let's go home. And he snapped me out of it right away. But for a split second, I almost became a civilian and my dad knocked it out of me. <laughs> that, that's a great story. And I'm looking it up here. It looks like your fourth fight. And that was in uh, 2006 at the Orleans Hotel against Julio Chavez. That's, that's a really. That's exactly what it was. Damn, I have a good memory. <laughs> you, hey, yeah, not too bad. Uh, so with that said, you know, and, and the fact that you have these stories and these moments of advice, and I know you just retired, so you're probably taking time to think about it, but what, what is next for you? Would you consider being a trainer and kind of passing along the, the lessons that you learned? Would you consider commentating? What, what do you want to do next? Commentating would, would definitely be something in my avenue or up my alley, but also – a lot of fighters that were great fighters, and believe me, I'm not calling myself a great fighter. I'll let people call me that. But a lot of fighters that were, were good at the sport of boxing, that doesn't always translate into being a great trainer. You know, it's a special uh, talent to be a good, a good trainer. I don't know if I can offer anybody anything from training. Um, so, I, And I wouldn't want to put someone's life in my hands if I don't feel confident doing it. Um I don't know in what way I will lend myself back to boxing. I don't know that yet. I haven't sat down and, and, and thought about it that too deeply, but um, I'm sure I'll be involved some way down the road. And in a few months here or, or, or a year, I think the world will know what I'm going to do with myself with regards to career choice. And I think they'll be excited. I just don't want to unveil that information yet. That's totally understandable, and, and best of luck to you with whatever you decide to do. I'm sure you will be successful. What would be your final message to your fans, your supporters? What would be the, the final thing you want to say to them? I would want to say thank you so much for allowing me to uh, to show my talent, to show my heart, for allowing me to be their fighter. Uh, the, the greatest meme I ever read online because us fighters do pay attention to that. Was a gentleman sent, saying, I had a hard day at work, but I called on my inner John Molina and I got through it. And to <laughs> me, that meant the work. That was amazing. When I, I took a picture of it, I saved it because the fans, the fact that the fans can relate to me like that and can call on me to be an inspiration means the world to me. Let's hope so that we thank can all. You guys. Uh... Thank you. Let's hope that we can all call on our inner John Molina when we're going through through any tough times. So last question, you know, boxing is notorious for fighters coming out of retirement, right? So I want to know, you're obviously calling it a day, you're retiring. If there's a big offer down the line, a huge matchup, is there any chance we see John Molina in, in the ring? Is it a 99% retirement or is this a 100%, you know, never again retirement? Oh man, it's so hard to say, but I believe I believe that's it. When I make that decision, remember when I was telling you about the decisions making in your mind. If you're not okay with boxing, don't you don't belong. Being the fact that the R word has already crept in my brain, I think that I'm a different fighter because of that already. So I wouldn't want to cheat the fans. I wouldn't want to cheat myself, and I wouldn't want to cheat my family because my daughters are old enough now to, to understand that what I do, I wouldn't want to put, put them through that. My poor wife has been do it, doing it for my whole career, and my poor mother and father having to watch me fight all those years. I think I'm done. I think that, 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 that's it.
Now, if uh, BKB, uh, you know, bare knuckle boxing wants to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally right. kidding, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, it's um, boxing, but there's no, other you venues. know, it, there's other outlets. <laughs> there is other venues. I I did my thing, man. I'm proud of what I what I've accomplished. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of my family. I'm thankful for the opportunity all the way from Dan Goosen to Tom Brown to Al Heyman, Sam Watson, every man that's ever given me an opportunity to display my craft. I'm very thankful for. Well, John Molina, if it is the end, thank you for, for entertaining us the last 13 years, 39 pro fights, nicknamed the Gladiator, and you certainly deserve that nickname. So, Please enjoy retirement, um, and, and thank you again for, for what you've done for this sport and, and for entertaining us for all these years. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. That was John Molina, an always honest John Molina, and, and I really do hope he does become a trainer or an announcer. He has a great boxing mind, and it would be great for him to continue to share uh, some of those life lessons that he learned uh, on his journey in boxing. Up next, we just had the Errol Spence versus Sean Porter scrap. It was a great back and forth fight. It was a very close fight, uh, which is which is what I thought it would be because Sean Porter, the way he fights, he gets in your face. Um, he makes it difficult, right? And Spence was able to eventually control that, and he, he landed the big knockdown uh, in round 11, but it was a very close fight. And, and what happens in a close fight? Well, the judges have a have a tough decision it's what do you reward right are you rewarding the guy who is moving forward in your face are you rewarding the guy who's uh kind of taking a back step but is landing punches counter punching more it's it's a it's a very tough assignment and that's why i actually wanted to speak to marcos viegas uh because he was the pbc unofficial scorer and the thing about being an unofficial scorer is your score gets put up uh, on the graphic every few rounds, and a lot of people are going to scrutinize that, right? Because they're going to say, "Well, I didn't have it that way." So it's 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 a tough job, uh, and and Marcus had to take that on, especially for a fight of this magnitude. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Marcos Viegas. This is Karen Batia for the Ask the Experts podcast. I'm talking to Marcos Viegas. Marcos. I don't even know the best way to introduce you besides saying you're probably the hardest working man in, in television. Uh, I know you're the, the founder of Fight High, PBC unofficial scorer. I know that's just a few of the things that you do. So you had the tough assignment of unofficially scoring uh, Errol Spence versus Sean Porter. And I say that's tough because it was such a close fight. So going into that fight, were you a little nervous at all saying, hey, I know this is going to be a close fight and a lot of people are going to be looking at this at this unofficial scorecard? Yeah, you know, if you ask uh, Dan Canobio from Coffee Box, I, I was seated right next to him uh, before this fight started. And, and I remember I looked over him and I told him, like, man, this, this fight's going to be close. Like, uh, you know, I was a little nervous. I was a little stressed. Because, uh, you know, Sean Porter fights in general tend to be very close and, and very very hard to judge, you know, and it's, it's, it's always a, a, a pull and tug with his fights because on um, one instance, when you're watching him fight, you know, he works the whole three minutes, you know, it, regardless if it's uh, clear, clean punches uh, to the head or body, um, or if it's just him working on the inside, you know, either way, he's always working in there. 
And you always have to ask yourself the question, who did the better work? And, you know, a lot of times Sean just over like, outworks, uh, over volumes his uh, opponents. And you got to give it to him because you, you got to see the whole context of the round and who was doing the most work. Um, you know, given the last fights that I worked for Sean, the last one, uh, the Ugas fight that I scored for Fox, and then the other fights in the past uh, that I was present for, in person when he fought to Keith Thurman and uh, Danny Garcia, they were all really, really close um, and, and they were really hard to score. So, yeah, I, I remember when this fight was announced, I was just like, oh, great. You know, this is going to be a really hard fight to uh, to score. And then as it got closer, I, I would say, you know, it wasn't that I was nervous, uh, but just a feeling like, man, this, this is going to be a really hard night uh hard night uh, of work given how close uh, Sean's fights tend to be. So yeah, it, it can be a little nerve wracking when you know certain guys, their style. And especially too, you know, this is on the pay-per-view. There's a lot of eyes watching. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, it, it puts a little bit more pressure on it, but yeah, you know, I, I tend to know like which guys will give a hard fight to score and, and sure. yeah, I'll be like, ah, oh, man. I'm sure you were looking at, you know, Sean Porter, we, you've seen him in these razor thin fights, like you said, against other opponents. Uh, and, and it's always, he, he's going to be in your face. He's going to be in his opponent's face. And that's going to make it difficult for both yourself as an unofficial scorer and the official judges who also have a hard assignment when it comes to a Sean Porter fight when he's fighting quality opposition. So let, let me ask you this before we get into the fight a little bit, your job as an unofficial scorer, um, how do you, do you put yourself in the mindset of, what a judge would score. You know, we know a judge is supposed to look at effective aggression, ring generalship, defense, and hard and clean punching. Or do you do, you know, Max Kellerman for a long time had the theory where he said, it's almost who would you rather be, right? That, that, that's a simple way to look at it. Who would you rather have been in that round? Um, so, so what is your approach to, to scoring a fight? Well, you know, I, I think in general, I follow the criteria of the judges. And, and, you know, I base it off of, you know, how they see a fight and, and really, you know, how an amateur fight is scored as well. You know, in the amateurs, there's a lot of similar, yeah, I know it's a point system, but what's getting you the points, you know, clean punches to the head and body, you know, and then I also take into account the other things, you know, who, who's doing more to win the round, who was the one that was coming forward, but landing punches. It's just not about coming forward. It's about coming forward and being effective. And that's what it means when someone says effective aggression, that's, coming forward, being aggressive, but landing punches on your opponent um, as, as well. So I tend to see it more like the judges, but when it comes to like a round that is very close and, and like I can't decide off off the bat, you know, it'll usually take me like a second or two. I ask myself, well, who did more to win the round? And, and when you look at it, I think like the clearest analogy to it would be, you know, when you're on a, a school playground, and you see two kids fight, you know, usually the guy that uh, had more like, oh, like type moments in the round or when they fought on the playground is usually the guy that's perceived to have won the fight in the schoolyard. And it's the same thing with, I think, inside the ring, too, when you, you look at a close round and you're like, OK, well, who stuck out? Whose punches stuck out more to me? That's usually the guy that'll get the nod. Right. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. You have to look at it with the playground analogy, but you have to do it round by round versus, you know, in a playground where it could just be whoever did well late, maybe catches your attention and, and they, you, in your mind, you think they, 
they won the fight. So let, let's talk about the fight a little bit. Early on, you know, after round three, you had it 29-28 for Spence. You said uh, it could have been Porter for the same score. So obviously it was close early on. Were you surprised that it was as close as it was? Because I personally thought before this fight it was going to be extremely competitive. Um, but a lot of people did pick Spence to win, and, and he was a big favorite. Were you surprised early on at how competitive Sean Porter was? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say no, because usually when Sean has fought the, the top of his division, Porter, Garcia, uh, Ugas, he's been really competitive. And, and you know, given his style, um, you know, the, the volume style is always one where it's not like gaming the system, but if you throw more punches, you're going to have a higher percentage of landing more punches. And you, you got to take that to an, into account. So, you know, Sean was doing really well, um, I guess, throughout the whole fight when you look at it as well. But I did expect Spence to use his distance more in box. And I was thinking that would be the way that he would approach the fight, that we knew that Sean wasn't going to try to box with Errol, a guy who was longer and uh, could potentially give him problems if he tried to bull rush in. Uh, but his best bet was to fight a close inside fight. And that, that's what Sean did. And because he fought for many of the rounds, his type of fight, that's why he was in it and, and did really well. No, certainly. And I think uh, what Sean Porter does is it's not necessarily gaming the system. You know, uh, years ago, Joe Calzaghe used to get. Yeah, um, I, some... I'm so glad you brought up Joe Calzaghe. Yeah. He used to, I you know, do the, the Joe Calzaghe because his right, punches, the pity pat style, right? Yeah. It wasn't the most effective. But right. You had to give him credit. You you had to look like, hey, okay, this guy, the, the guy that Joe's fighting landed maybe like four or five good solid punches, but then Joe landed 80 punches right. that might not be the most effective. Like you, you have to give the round to Joe because he's actually sheer volume. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so, you know, looking at your scorecard, 86-85 for Spence through round nine, you said that it could be a draw or Porter could be winning. So it was a really close fight. Uh, that 11th round uh, knockdown. Now, obviously, we know when, when you're scoring a fight, you get an extra point for the knockdown. I think what it also did is that was a close round that could have gone either way. But then when you get the knockdown, you're probably going to give the guy with the knockdown a 10-8. So just tell me your initial impressions of, of seeing that knockdown. Were you surprised someone as strong as Sean Porter uh, getting knocked down? Um, I, I actually agree with Lennox Lewis, which is that Porter's strength is actually what kept him up. You know, I know he went down and, and he made, uh, he, he actually touched the canvas, but he didn't get knocked down, knocked down on his back. So I, I actually think any other fighter in any other welterweight, I think would have been done maybe from that, from that vicious left hand by uh, Errol Spence. What did you think of that knockdown in the, in the 11th round? Well, I remember when it happened, um, there was a lot of people that, you know, were like, Oh no, like, Oh my gosh. But I, I think, you know, generally speaking, thinking like when that knockdown happened i think you know a lot of the people watching were like you know what that that probably sealed the win for errol you know right. it was really really close and, and that knockdown with that extra point is probably if, if nothing crazy happens in the next round in the 12th and final round that knockdown with that point is probably going to seal the win uh for sean porter and it was a good little hook that was landed on porter you know i think the only other time that we've seen recently at least porter um hit the canvas was in his fight with Broner, and I believe, you know, he hit the canvas earlier on in his career, but the the opponent that he faced um, slips my mind. I, I want to say it might have been Joel Diaz's brother that um, had scored a knockdown, but uh, don't quote me with that. I'm not too sure. My uh, memory's kind of fuzzy after all this time. 
<laughs> but <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you know, you know, he he's shown that he has a durable chin and that he can take it. Uh, you know, so I, I wasn't surprised that that happened. I was surprised that he was able to kind of just shrug it off and still continue to be aggressive and and come forward. Like Spence wasn't able to put him away. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to uh, talk to Sean and, and see if that how hurt he was with that knockdown, but. Uh, it, it seemed that it didn't affect him too much because he round 12, he ran, uh, went right back at him. He, he certainly didn't. Actually, if you look at his uh, reaction, it was almost more of disappointment, right? And as, it's not, oh, my God, I'm hurt. How do I get back? It was, I've worked so hard for this moment. This is such a close fight. And we know that now having a 10-8 round against you is, is really going to is really gonna cause problems in terms of the final scorecards. And obviously, we know that's what happened. Spence won the fight, and, and he certainly deserved to win the fight, but it was a close fight. The other um, you know, uh, interesting thing about yourself on the broadcast was the feature about who's next. We, we've moved on from Floyd Mayweather. We obviously know he's retired. Manny Pacquiao um, is, is still in the, in the top of the division, obviously beating Thurman, but we know he's 40 years old, so eventually he will move on. The feature talks about who is next, you know, Keith Thurman, Danny Garcia, Errol Spence, of course. So, let me ask you this. Who, who do you think is, is the next guy in, uh, in the welterweight division or even in overall boxing to kind of carry that torch and be the next star? Well, you know, that piece that we did was featured on the welterweight division because since, you know, Floyd Mayweather has retired, there, there's been a void as to, like, who's the name and the face of the division. And with, you know, Manny on the twilight of his career, you know, any one of these fights can end up being his last fight. And, and you know, him and Floyd have carried the division for the better part of the last decade. Uh, you know, so really it's, it's focusing on, on, you know, out of those four, which, you know, when you look at it in hindsight, I, I think we're going to look at those four very fondly through a historical perspective because they, they chose to fight each other. They were the elite of their division at that time. Uh, you know, and for the longest time we thought it was going to be Keith. And, and, you know, before I get on to this point, this Spence and Porter fight made me realize how good Keith Thurman was back when he was still healthy and still a hundred percent, because I felt that he handled Sean Porter a little bit better, even though he didn't get a knockdown a little bit better um, than Errol Spence. Errol Spence had a dog fight with Sean Porter. Keith Thurman outboxed Sean Porter, though it was a close fight and, and Sean did have his moments. He never allowed himself to fight Sean Porter in a dog fight. So for a bit, we thought that the one was going to be Keith Thurman because he unified first before everybody. He, he beat a Danny Garcia to get the, the WBC title, I believe, and then he had gotten the WBA title as well. Now Spence comes along, and, and we think he's the goods. He passed his first test. He fought his first really elite guy at 147 pounds. I mean elite like the top of the top. But he didn't pass the test of flying colors. There's still a lot of doubts there because of, of how much problems Porter gave him. And I know everybody was expecting Spence to, to be in a tough competitive fight, but to be overwhelmingly dominant over Sean Porter, like a convincing win. And there's still a lot of people that feel that Sean Porter won that fight. With that being said, you know, the, the one is going to be the one that gets all the belts. You know, you have Terrence Crawford out there. Uh, you know, his list of opponents haven't been as good now compared to the other guys, but he's still seen as the guy that whoever clears out 
on the PVC side of the stable has to fight Terrence Crawford. Um, and I think, you know, the winner there is going to be the guy that goes ahead and carries the division. But I think given the attention, uh, the media buzz and hype that Fox has been able to put behind those four guys. And now with Errol Spence being able to unify that, there's certainly a lot more attention and he could be the guy at 147 pounds up until he fights Terrence Crawford. And if he beats Terrence Crawford, then yeah, you know, I, I could see him being one of the, the bigger stars in boxing, but certainly, you know, the biggest name in boxing right now since Floyd's retired has been Canelo Alvarez. So uh, I think, you know, in that aspect, like who can be the next face of boxing? Well, we have Canelo, you know, and after Canelo, that's when we're going to see like, who's going to be the one that really takes the mantle of, of carrying the whole name and face of uh, the sport of boxing. But for the welterweight division, it's certainly leaning towards Errol Spence, given this last victory. Uh, that he had over Sean Porter. Certainly, it definitely is, especially the way that Spence is trending. And if he can continue to get the big names in the ring and, and beat these guys, then then he will certainly have that. But I'm glad you brought up Terrence Crawford. And I wanted to ask you about that. Um, obviously, we, we know that there's different uh, sides of the street. There's different leagues. And it's not only PBC slash Fox that's doing this. You know, The Zone put up a graphic. Uh, on social media saying who should Golovkin fight and Charlo wasn't mentioned on there. Um, but it is pretty, pretty glaring, right, on these, on these Fox broadcasts that Terrence Crawford is not, even, is not even being mentioned. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. You know, the, the, you're, they're talking about the best names in the welterweight division. They're showing graphics of the, of the title holders. Terrence Crawford is certainly a title holder and one of the top pound-for-pound -pound fighters in the sport. What do you think about him not being mentioned on the broadcast? Yeah, you know, it's um, – um it puts me in a weird position because, you know, obviously full disclosure, I work for, for, uh, for Fox, you know, um, my best bet is when you look at the UFC, the UFC never mentions any of the Bellator champions, you know, because they have their own organization with their own champions and, and all that, you know, and to them, their whole universe, their whole world revolves around who's in their organization, you know, that, that I think that's, you know, the take that, PBC is trying to go with on, on Fox. They're trying to see themselves as the uh, premier boxing organization. And honestly, they do have all the top, just about all the top talent all uh, on one roof and stuff. So I think, you know, because they know that they, they're trying to kind of, you know, do what the UFC has done in terms of how like they market and, and push their brand out. You know, you would never see the UFC, um, tried to mention any of the Bellator guys and, and vice versa. When you watch Bellator programming, you don't see them really mention, and you know, who would our light heavyweight champion would you like to see face? You know, they, they, their, their brand is Bellator and they like to keep, you know, their, their fighters and their branding on point with what they're putting on. Now, um, in terms of him not being mentioned in the discussion, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because, as a boxing fan too, I, I feel like it could be taken and I know fans in general have taken it like that as they're discrediting Terrence, that they're not giving him the respect of, of being a world champion. And I think it's much more than that. He's not only a world champion at 147 pounds, but he was the undisputed champion at 140. That's not a very common thing to do, you know, and that, that gives, I think a, it adds more credence and respect to somebody like a Terrence Crawford. I, I know the policy in general, and I think it might come off as, oh, you know, they're, they're trying to throw shade at Terrence Crawford, is that they're no longer recognizing the WBO. 
they're, they're not recognizing it as a legitimate sanctioning organization. So that is why at, at times you don't see Crawford in those graphics because they're only recognizing the WBA, the IBF, and the WBC. Uh, so, you know, the unintended consequence with that is it seems on the surface because I don't think that's been too well publicized that they're not recognizing. There's, there's people that they know about uh, that have mentioned it. There's people on Twitter that have said it, but I don't think it's been really marketed out. Um, so it comes off as they're trying to ignore Terrence Crawford or, or, or trying to forget that he even exists. No, it's not that. It's they just happen not to recognize the WBO title that he holds. It's the same thing with Andy Ruiz. Andy Ruiz is WBO champion, but he's a PBC fighter. But whenever they mention, if you notice the graphics, they don't mention the WBO title. They only mention the other ones that he has. Um, but, you know, you, you can't. It's like you can't pretend that he doesn't exist, you know. Like it, it's, it's right. It, WBO title or not, you know, we know he's a great yeah. fighter. Do you think well, it's if not he only was, that, it's it's yeah, he's seen as one A, you know, to Errol Spence's number one at 147 pounds, you know. So you can't pretend like he doesn't exist either. You you can't pretend that. And and do you think that if he had one of the other titles, IBF, WBC, WBA, then he would have been shown in the graphic, or or do you think? Uh, well, what, what do you what do you think of that? If he had a different title, do you think they would have mentioned him there? I, yeah, I, I think so. I think so because they showed Canelo on a graphic uh, okay. for a feature we did with David Benavides. Canelo, they they showed Canelo there, you know, and Canelo's a zone right. guy, but right. they put him on there. So yeah, I certainly think they would. Let let well, you know, let's hope that uh, they you know they can start to acknowledge the other fighters more. And I say this not just for PBC and Fox. I say for all the other. Uh, divisions, because and I'm sure you feel the same way. I hear you with the comparison of UFC and Bellator, but I think as boxing fans, and I'm sure you feel the same way. No, no one wants it to be that split out where we're not mentioning or, or having the matchups that that we want. So let's let's hope that that happens. So I wanted to ask you also. Uh, we mentioned Keith Thurman, um, and and you know the fact I, I know that you had the uh, interview with Keith Thurman before his his fight with Manny Pacquiao. If anyone wants to see it, it's, it's on YouTube. It was in his gym, and he. You were talking about Pacquiao uh, beating Jeff Horn, and Keith Thurman got very, very agitated. He, he kind of got in your face a little bit. I'm just curious, you know, your experience on the other end of, of getting Keith Thurman's wrath there. Were you ever worried at all? Were you ever concerned about, about Keith Thurman in, in, in that moment? I was surprised, and I remember looking at his eyes, and he had, like, this crazy look in his eyes, and I was like, <laughs> oh, man, he's really getting angry about this. And I was right. kind of like – all right, well, you need, you need to, and I remember telling myself in my head, I'm like, all right, like, don't, don't over agitate him. Just like, you know, talk to him like in a comp, like, don't get all crazy with him. Like, as in like, don't, don't challenge him too, too much and, and stuff like that. Don't give him even more aggregated. Cause yeah, like he, he completely like started getting all crazy. Um, and, and I don't know if he was just doing it for the cameras or he was, I, I struck a nerve with him or I, I don't know what, but yeah, I saw them that, that crazy look in his eyes and I was just like, Oh wow. He's getting really mad. <laughs> but Hey, I, I will still say to this day, Jeff Horn didn't win that fight. I, I don't know what he was seeing to be honest. I, you know, and I think a majority of boxing fans feel that Jeff Horn didn't win that fight. Oh, certainly. I think, I think uh, everyone saw Pacquiao. Uh, I think it was the ninth round where he almost knocked him out. And I think they saw what he did the rest of the fight and, uh, I'm sure a lot of people thought Pacquiao should have won that fight. Who who went off more, in your opinion, and, and in which interview did you feel more uncomfortable? The one with Keith Thurman or the one with Angel Garcia? Danny Garcia's oh, dad, I know. He got yeah, in your face as well. Angel Garcia, because with the Angel Garcia one, I legit thought he was going to punch me in the face. Like, I <laughs> I was ex- 
I was expecting he was either going to punch me in the face or he was going to go grab my throat. So I started actually, uh, if there was a wider view of that interview, I actually started, I, I put my leg back just in case to go ahead and embrace if he did like lunge at me or did throw a punch. So I wouldn't like, uh, completely fall over. Um, and <laughs> I, I started, I could see like his, the people in his team, he got the attention of them because they were like looking at him too. And, and I remember after that they, they took him away, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was like, okay, well, if he's going to hit you, you better put a, a leg back because you don't want to fall over or hit anything, you know? And I'm like, just expect it because he's getting like really, really crazy. And, and I remember that whole week they were not that Danny wasn't, Danny was the only one that was calm, but everybody else in that team was really, really like in a weird mood. They were really agitated. I don't know if they were nervous or, you know, or scared, you know, at that time, Rihanna and Matisse was just mowing down through people. And honestly, none of us gave Danny a chance. I'll I'll admit it. I thought Matisse was going to win that fight. I thought Matisse was probably going to knock him out. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe that was coming into play, like the hype of this Lucas Matisse, who at that point was just mowing down through people. But no, definitely that Angel Garcia one. But the funny thing is I asked Angel um, two years after that interview, like, hey, you know, uh, were you going to hit me? Like, were you close to hitting me? <laughs> right. And he, he, he started laughing. He's like, no, man, I would never, ever in a million years do that to anybody. I'm like, no way. And he just laughed. He's like, but it was good for you, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, people still asked me about that interview whenever they see me he's like oh there you go you know so we always have a, a little laugh about it and because of it like i i feel like we have a, a really really good relationship now with each other uh when we see each other well that, that that's good that you guys have uh have a good relationship it, it's funny that you you kind of struck a nerve with him simply by asking about the opponent that they were fighting that's a very common and normal thing for anyone interviewing to ask um so it was it was kind of funny that it that it went down that way i'm glad that you didn't have to deal with him punching in your face just with him being aggressive. So just to close it out, let's do a little bit of a speed round here. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions about fights coming up and you tell me your pick or, or how you think they're going to play out. Um, first question, Canelo versus GGG. Do you think that it's, that we're going to get that fight uh, maybe in May of next year? Do you think that, that the trilogy is going to come together there? Yeah, I think so because that's the whole reason why they signed Canelo and triple G. And, and if I'm, somebody that's paying Canelo $360 million, I'm going to make sure I get my value from that. And, and I'm going to make sure that he knows I'm the one that's paying you. You better go ahead and fight this guy. So yeah, I, I, I would expect for it to happen. Let's, let's definitely hope it does. I think that's the fight that everyone wants to see. I think Golovkin being vulnerable in, in the way he was in his last fight, I think that makes it even more interesting. Yeah, that was and, another and I, super close fight too to score. That, that was a tough fight also. Yeah, you're, that's, that's, that's another tough one. I saw you had that 6-6 uh, with the knockdown going for Golovkin, so him getting the win there. But that was, that was another back-to-back uh, -back, uh, uh, close fight. Um, Canelo versus Kovalev. Obviously, for that Triple G fight to happen, he probably needs to get by Kovalev on November 2nd. So what, what is your pick on Canelo-Kovalev? Yeah, that's a hard one, man. Um, you would think Canelo, because of his speed and, and Kovalev's inability to take punishment really well to the body and that being Canelo's thing. But like when you look at his fight style wise, like on paper, Kovalev should win this fight, to be honest. Like he he's he's a very good boxer. He's longer, bigger, has more power, has a great jab, very underrated boxing with Buddy McGirt. He's shown to be boxing more, light on his feet. 
you know, he's fought a guy in yard that, that a lot of people say like, well, if yard was able to do that, Canelo's just going to walk over him. But like people are forgetting Canelo's moving up to weight classes. He's not as big as yard, you know, yard. I mean, Canelo, uh, and this was brought up to me by Andre Rozier, which really made me think Canelo's never really hurt a guy at middleweight, to be honest. He's a small middleweight. And he's like, well, what makes you think he's going to hurt a, a, a Kovalev, a guy that is naturally a lot bigger than him? Uh, don't be surprised if Sergey Kovalev wins and, and wins by outpointing Canelo with his jab. But on the flip side, me personally, I always like the smaller guys that are quicker when they're up against the bigger guys because I feel, you know, speed kills. And uh, we could see something like that. But I think the fight's going to be very, very competitive. Um, and there could be some scary moments in there for Canelo, but I'm, 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 I'm going with them, but with very, very severe hesitation because my gut is telling me style wise Canelo should not win this fight. Certainly. I think, you know, Canelo is good at combination punching, especially to the body and Kovalev's vulnerable to the body. So I think that's going to play into Canelo's favor, but I do agree with you that I actually think the weight jump 15 pounds, right? That's a lot. I think that's going to play a factor, and there might be moments where Canelo says, whoa, hold on, uh, I'm in this with a, with a bigger guy. Um, the, ne- the next fight I wanted to ask you about, is, and I'm guessing you're going to be there being the unofficial scorer, Deontay Wilder versus Luis Ortiz. Um, and and before, I, before I ask you about that, the one thing I want to say is I actually think there's a lot of pressure on Deontay Wilder in this, and I'll tell you why. Wilder says that when he fights fighters and beats them, they're never the same. So for him to back that up, uh, he has to really knock out Ortiz even sooner than he did the first time, right? Because in his theory, when he knocks a guy out, they're never the same. So what is your pick on, on Wilder versus Luis Ortiz too? Hmm. I think Wilder, it, honestly, it's dependent on what Ortiz shows up. If, if Ortiz shows up better condition than that first fight and doesn't show his age and, and is able to hurt Wilder again and not tire out and, and able to pace himself, he should win the fight, you know, but it's, it's the biggest factor is Luis Ortiz. That, that's what it is. You know, um, unless we get like a Wilder washing him out and around, usually he tends to, to do real well in rematches as we saw with, uh, remains to burn. Uh, but I think, you know, the safe bet of course is Wilder because he has everything in his corner in terms of like youth power, uh, speed, obviously, you know, his technique is nowhere near, uh, Luis Ortiz is, but his conditioning is a lot better as well. So, you know, the, the safe bet would be on Wilder, but really the, the wild factor is what Ortiz shows up. If it's an Ortiz that is the best he can be and the best he's ever been in his career and he doesn't tire out the way he tired out in that first fight where he had Wilder pretty much out on his feet in that round, he could very much win this fight. And we've been seeing upsets after upsets uh, this year. Uh, in big marquee matchups as well. Absolutely. And, and the question will be Luis Ortiz. At, he's, he's listed at 40 years old. Who knows if he's older, the speculation that he's a little bit older. So let's see how much he has left. Two more fights real quick before I let you go. Uh, if Wilder can get past Ortiz, he hopefully can get the Tyson Fury rematch, which is something we all want to see. Hopefully that would be early next year. Uh, if you had to ballpark that fight, how do you see that one playing out? You know, I really got to see how Deontay Wilder does in this Ortiz rematch for me to to properly be able to forecast like how it could go. You know, they always say in rematches, the boxer does better. 
Uh, Luis Ortiz is the boxer. So without saying he should do better in this rematch, you know, as, as well with the Fury fight, you know, Fury's the better boxer than Wilder. He should do better. Usually in rematches, historically, the boxer is always able to shut down and take away the thing that gave them problems in the first fight, that that's Deontay Wilder's power. So how do you take his power away? Well, one, you smother him, you fight him close so he can't get full extension in his punches. Or right. two, you know, you knock him off balance with the jab so he can't get set in the place to throw his big power hand. What does Tyson Fury do best? He moves and he jabs, you know, but he looked really bad in this last fight against Otto Wallen. So it's hard to see. I, I think maybe, you know, Fury didn't get up for, for this fight like he would have a, a bigger name opponent. I've been thinking for the longest time, maybe Wilder's a little bit overtrained uh, because he's been in camps like nonstop, nonstop, nonstop since, uh, he came back against a Turkish fighter that he fought um, close to a year and a half ago. And so I don't know. I got, I got to see how Wilder looks in this fight with Ortiz to, to be able to kind of compare and contrast who does what in the rematch. It, it'll certainly be interesting, and let's hope it happens. I think uh, Otto Wallin was actually a, a much tougher opponent than, than a lot of us thought. And I think he had a really good shin, and he went for the knock, and I think he deserves credit for that. So last last fight I wanted to ask you about, it's another rematch. Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz, too. It's a massive, massive fight. I personally think Joshua is going to make the adjustments. I think he's going to be a little bit more technical, and I think he will open up less, even if he has Ruiz hurt, leaving himself open less because he knows the hand speed is there for Ruiz. So I think Joshua is going to make the adjustments. What do you think about that rematch? Uh, I'm going to go with Andy Ruiz. Uh, you know, he's quicker, faster hands. And, you know, obviously what Joshua did in the first fight was pretty much what he was supposed to do uh, other than, you know, his head not being in the right spot, uh, both coming into the ring and being inside the ring. But um, it's just a bad, to me, it's a bad style matchup for Joshua. Who's a little bit like stiff in there, robotic. He's a little slower. He throws one ones and twos while Andy throws three, four and fives. Uh, and the other thing is I, I think, you know, Joshua's head is not in the right place, I don't think, still. You know, um, seeing him in New York, speaking with him, I, I think there's still a lot of questions there, uh, a lot of doubts there, um, a lot of soul-searching still. And usually, you know, when you suffer your first loss, it either goes and it lifts you up and, and takes you to even greater heights or it just completely trashes, trashes you as, as a fighter and you can never get past it, especially when you suffer your first knockout. You know, look, look what happened to Ronda Rousey. She could never you know, come back from that Holly Holm knockout. A lot of other fighters, when they get knocked out, um, you know, they have a difficult time coming back and being successful. And with that said, if Andy is training, he has a longer camp now to, to prepare for Joshua. Uh, I like his chances in this fight because of the hand speed. Uh, so I, I'll go with uh, Andy Ruiz beating Joshua again. Speed kills in boxing, and, and that's certainly a possibility. I saw Joshua at the, the New York press conference as well. He has a little bit more humility. He's a little more introspective, so we'll see how that translates into training. We'll see how that translates into the rematch. Marcos Villegas, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate all your insight, breaking it down for us, and I'm sure we'll see you on, on Fight Hub. We'll see you uh, ringside, score, unofficially scoring these fights for PBC. Uh, thanks so much, and, and hope to talk to you soon. Oh, thank you, my man. Anytime, man. It's, it's always fun uh, chatting the fights with you. That was Marcos Viegas breaking it 
down. Now, on that same uh, card where he was the unofficial scorer uh, for Spence Porter, the undercard was also a really good fight. It was Anthony Durrell versus David Benavidez. Durrell was the champion. Benavidez trying to get his belt back, and he was able to do so. And the reason he was able to do so is because he landed a punch that opened up a cut, um, and that was too much for Durrell to handle. And there was a man named Javon Sugarhill, who I'll be speaking to. He was the trainer of Durrell, and he had to make the tough decision to call the fight, to say, hey, that's enough's enough. And that's going to be a tough decision when your fighter is giving everything they have in the ring. They've worked so hard uh, for this moment. If you if you remember the backstory of Anthony Durrell, I mean, he's gone through a lot of adversity. He came back from cancer. He came back from a motorcycle accident that, that nearly killed him. Um, so he's been through so much to get back to this level. And then you have to make a decision there to say, hey, I need to stop this fight. And, that, and that, that's what happened. And that's why I wanted to speak to Sugar Hill about the psychology of, of, of going into that decision. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sugar Hill. This is Karen Batia for the Ask the Experts podcast, speaking to Javon Sugar Hill. So Sugar Hill, you were the coach for uh, Anthony Durrell. He had the tough task of David Benavidez on September 28th at Staples Center. So I just want to know your initial impressions, you know, Anthony in the ring with David. Obviously, David is, is stands very upright. He's a tall fighter. He has that size. Um, what, what did you notice early on in terms of, of Darrell's success against Benavidez? Uh, the success Anthony uh, was having was uh, just boxing Benavidez, uh, making him do what he wanted. Making Anthony making the David do what he wanted him to do. Um, you know, they were both jabbing. Uh, David was missing a lot. Uh, he just wasn't as effective as he normally would be. And, uh, just wasn't as comfortable as he normally, as he normally is when boxing. And Anthony, uh, Anthony gave those things to David, which, uh, you know, which, uh, had Anthony in total control. Anthony was, was doing his thing. He was, he was landing combinations. He was moving a lot. And uh, even though Benavides seemed like the slightly bigger guy, Anthony was able to kind of punch you up a little bit. Did, did you train for, for all of that? And, and was everything that, that David Benavides brought out, um, especially early on, was that what you expected? Uh, pretty much is what I expected. David is a great, uh, David is a great fighter. And, uh, you know, he's young. and He's, he's learning. Uh, he's learned a lot. And he has a lot to learn. And, uh, the, you know, what David uh, came into the ring as was what I, I thought he would do. Um, everything that he did is what I thought he would do and what I knew he would do. And he, he's a notoriously slow starter, and then he kind of picks it up um, and, and starts to throw more combination punches. He's, he's known as a combination puncher. So early on, were, were you preparing Anthony a little bit to say, hey, this guy may uh, start a little slow, and he's going to turn it on in the later rounds? No, I wasn't preparing him to, you know, to, for David to turn it on in the later rounds. You know, I know David is a, is a 12 round fighter and, uh, you know, we just prepare for, I just prepare Anthony for 12 rounds. Uh, David is, uh, you know, I guess, you know, what you said, he starts slow. I don't think of David as starting slow. Um, you know, but I know as, as the fight goes on, you know, David is, a, is an intelligent fighter and he's able to make adjustments, uh, you know, pretty much the same as Anthony. That's why I, I loved this fight, uh, so much the matchup of the styles and the, and the athletes. And I thought it was a great fight, you know, for Anthony and for uh, David. And, um, you know, those two guys, uh, you know, uh, 
You know, they're, they're, they're competitors. Anthony, uh, you know, he didn't want to quit. Uh, it was my decision to stop the fight. And, uh, you know, just because, uh, you know, it's it a cut. Anthony wasn't getting beat up or anything like that, but it was just a cut. It was a very bad cut. And I didn't want the cut to get any worse or any worse and, you know, uh, you know, possibly, you know, put a halt to his career or, you know, uh, endanger any part of his life where he could, uh, couldn't enjoy the time with his kids and his family. Absolutely. And we know Anthony is, is such a great fighter. He came into this uh, fight with a six fight winning streak. We know what he's come back for him in, in terms of cancer and a motorcycle accident. So it obviously took a lot of work to get to this level. And it was it was definitely an explosive matchup. Um, when did you first notice the, the cut over over Anthony's eye? Uh, if I'm correct, I noticed the cut in the sixth round. Uh, I didn't see the punch. It was just when he, his back was turned toward me. And, uh, when he turned around, I looked, I saw, it was, a, it was a certain movement he made, something where I thought I saw something. So I was really focused and I'm like, what is that? And, uh, and, uh, he finally, you know, was facing me and I saw the cut. Uh, later on, I still haven't seen the fight yet. But later on, I was, you know, I was told it was from a jab. So, uh, you know, just a jab, not no, you know, no big blow or anything like that, but just a little, a little jab. And this, that's boxing, you know, it happens in fights. And, uh, this is one of the reasons why, you know, for me and, uh, and Anthony and the rest of the team, I mean, uh, I would definitely love a rematch with, uh, David Benavidez, you know, because it was a competitive fight. And from what I'm hearing, like I said, I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, everyone's telling me that Anthony was up on the scorecards and, you know, it was just a cut. Anthony couldn't see. And, uh, you know, that, that brought the halt to the fight. That, that brought the halt. And, and <clears throat> when you first saw the cut, um, was your initial reaction, let's kind of see how this plays out. Let's keep an eye on it for the next few rounds. Did you think about stopping the fight earlier? I mean, what was your, what was your mindset when you first saw the cut there? Uh, when I first saw the cut, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, the Carlos Vargas cut, man, you know, you know, it's time for you to go to work. And, uh, you know, he did the best he could do uh, in that round, and, and they came back for the seventh round. Uh, you know, going se- I mean, seventh round, Anthony told he told me that I can't see. And I looked at his eye, and I was like, the referee had stopped it twice already to let the doctor see it. And I was like, uh, thinking to myself, well, I-, I was thinking that they were going to stop it because of the cut already uh, when the doctor checked it twice. And I just told Anthony, I said, I said fuck it. I said, go out there and make this the last round. That was round eight. And uh, I, uh, Anthony, Anthony went out there. Anthony went out there in round eight and had a and had a good round in round eight. You know, he controlled the round eight. And uh, when he came back to the corner, I was just looking at him. I said, well, what you want to do? You know, because that was a good round. I, uh, I thought maybe the cut would have bothered him a bit more, but it was, you know, Carlos did a good job with the cut. And uh, we went out for the ninth round. And, uh, I just was watching him, you know, and at that point I, I saw that the cut started bleeding again where he couldn't see out of both eyes. And, uh, that was my choice to stop the fight. He couldn't see. He couldn't, he couldn't defend himself. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't, uh, you know, attack, uh, plot any out offense or anything. So I just stopped the fight. Yeah. I, I actually tweeted that during the broadcast because we could hear you between rounds and, and you said, fuck it, go for it. So obviously what you meant by that is, you know, this cut's bothering you. The, the doctor's getting close to stopping it. Go for the home run there. Go for the knockout, right? That's what that's what your instructions were at that point. That's the crunk way. That's what Emmanuel would have said. So I I've been through so much living with him and learning 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just natural. I, I know what to do. It's not that I had to think about it, but thinking about it now, I know that's what Emmanuel would have said. I mean, you got nothing else to lose. They're going to stop the fight on the cut anyway. Might as well give it all you got. You know, I, I spent a long time working side by side with the, the great Emmanuel Stewart. And of course you did as well. And if, if that's what he would have done, then that's definitely the right, the right advice, uh, for sure. So in, in that last round, the ninth round, um, just walk me through the, the making, you know, how did you make that decision at that time? Um, you know, what was, what was going through your head and how did you finally pull the trigger and say, okay, that's it. Enough's enough here. Uh, well, at, at that time, I, you know, I could see the answer. I could see the blood was in both his eyes. It wasn't because of where the cut was at. It was close to the bridge of the nose and it was, it was traveling over to his left eye. You know, I saw that when we wiped it out, you know, wiped it off the first time. And then, the, you know, and at the end of the eighth round, it was still over there in the eye, but it wasn't bleeding as, as fast. And, uh, in the ninth round, you know, uh, uh, matter of fact, the eighth round, he turned softball. So I said, go back softball, but he couldn't go back softball because the eye was just, it was cut so bad. He couldn't see out of his lead eye, his right eye, which would have been a softball stand. So he stayed right-handed. At that point, I was like, oh boy, because he couldn't go back to the softball stand, you know, to, the, uh, you know, to fight because he couldn't see. And, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, one of the neutral corners and, uh, you know, David started, you know, picking up the pace. And I'm like, uh, Anthony really can't hold him off because he can't see. He couldn't count. I think Anthony even threw a punch and just clearly missed, like didn't even know where he was at. <laughs> so at that point, I was just thinking like, ah, I look like I'm about to stop it unless, you know, unless he can, you know, hold Benavidez, tie him up or something like that. But he couldn't even see enough to do that pretty much. So uh informed the, the commissioner in the corner to step up on the apron and stop the fight. And that's what was done. And, and it definitely was the, the right decision there, Anthony, not being able to perform at the, the best of his ability because not being able to see. Um, what, what did Anthony say to you after the fight? Did he support you stopping the fight? Did he want to keep going? What did he say to you? Yeah, Anthony didn't say that. He didn't, he didn't mind stopping the fight. He said, he said, you made the call. You know, he, he trusts me. Uh, you know, uh, me and Anthony are like family. So you know, I got to take care of him like a little brother. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, as if, from, as if, and, as, and as if I wanted someone to take care of me, it was the right decision. Uh, he wasn't mad about it. He said, man, I, I, I gotta, I gotta, he said, I want a rematch. He said, I want to fight him again. He said, I was winning. It's just a cut. I just could, you know, just a cut. The fight was competitive, uh, competitive enough. And I, I feel that there should be a rematch for that fight. Uh, you know, and, uh, things would be a lot different. That and, and, Let's yeah. hope that, that that rematch does materialize. I think uh, Anthony certainly deserved uh, deserves a rematch against David Benavidez, and it, and it was a great fight. So what is the timetable um, for Anthony now? Obviously, you know, you're going to have to take some time to, to let the cut heal up. When do you think that we could see him back in the ring? Uh, I'm not sure. I think a cut like that maybe takes a good three months, you know, three, four months to heal up properly. And, uh, that's just enough time for those guys to get back in shape and, uh, you know, fight again, pretty much. You know, soon after that, they can, they can set a deal for the fight. And, uh, you know, those guys, those two guys should be fighting again. Uh, I don't think that I'm, you know, I'm, um, uh, that's why I'm, I'm speaking so highly of the rematch. You know, I'm boy, boy to my team. It should be an immediate rematch. Uh, I think David gave, uh, one of his other opponents a rematch, uh, you know, uh, after, you know, their, their fight. So, why wouldn't he give Anthony a rematch? Uh, David did say that was the toughest fight of his life, you know, so, uh, he likes the competition, then, you know, I feel that he should get a rematch and, uh, they could settle this, 
they can settle this, uh, you know, once again. Absolutely. Two fights ago, he gave Ronald Gabriel a, a rematch. So <clears throat> it was announced after the fight that, um, that Benavidez was actually possibly going to fight Avni Yildirim, who, who's an opponent that obviously you know uh, very well because that was Anthony's last opponent um, before this. There was also a cut in that in that fight, but that time it was because of a, a head clash. So it also came out in the news recently that that Yildirim had tested positive um, for two uh, two performance enhancing drugs. There they're looking into it. There's going to be a WBC investigation. I, I spoke to Yildirim's team. They said that that it's a you know that. Avni never took anything, and the investigation will, will kind of prove that. What do you make of that? You know, the, the opponent that that you just fought uh, now tests uh, positive. I mean, that that can't be a good feeling for you, knowing that that Anthony was out there against someone who possibly, uh, you know, had did performance enhancing drugs, right? Um, I don't look at it that way. That that fight is in the past. Uh, Avni tested positive, which been the video supposed to fight. Let's put Anthony back in there and fight him again. Uh, you know, same as when David, you know, David had a, had tested positive. He had to sit, you know, and wait. And, uh, I just think it's more fitting and, and things happen for certain reasons. Anthony should be getting that fight again. Uh, if not, Avenue wouldn't have tested, not being funny, but Avenue wouldn't have tested positive. If that wasn't the way it's supposed to be. Anthony should be getting that fight, that rematch again. And, uh, you know, let Avenue sell out his, his, uh, his differences and, and uh, <laughs> in his situation and let those two guys go ahead and fight. Absolutely. And and just to close it off, you know, you and, and Anthony, like we said, have been through the adversity and made the comebacks and had the great moments. Um, you know, we talked about the car accident, cancer and all, all this stuff that you guys have been together for so long. So I'm guessing the mindset uh, with you and Anthony is, is going to be the same right now, which is, you know, you've overcome adversity before and, and overcoming it this time and, and, and getting back in the ring and hopefully getting the rematch. Uh, you're still going to have that that positive outlook and, and still looking to to make that happen, right? Hey, I, that's why I'm talking to you. Rematch. Anthony Jarez, uh, there's a rematch with David Benavidez. Uh, those two guys fight again. Those guys are both champions. Uh, uh, David has just become the two-time champion. Anthony was two-time champion. Anthony Durrell, uh becomes a three-time world champion in the middleweight division. Absolutely. Let's let's hope that that rematch comes together next. I, I would certainly like to see it. I'm sure the fi- the fans would like to see it. Uh, Javon Sugarhill, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck, uh, so, so with listen, Anthony. Yeah, so go listen, ahead. Everybody, yes, sir. Everybody says my name wrong, but it's easier to just say Sugarhill Stewart or Sugarhill or something like that because of my first name gets butchered so much. I don't use it so much. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So so let me let me rephrase that. Sugar Hill Stewart, thank you, thank you so much uh, for the time. Best of luck to you, and, and I hope to, to see you in the in the ring soon. Uh, and hope, hopefully, we'll see the the rematch, Darrell Benavides. And I'm sure you're also keeping busy with with the big stable of, of fighters that that you have. Um, thank you, thank you so much for the time, and, and I hope to see you back in there soon. Okay, Anthony Darrell Davis Benavides rematch part two. Part two, let's make it happen. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank you so much. All right, bye bye. That was Anthony Durrell's trainer and many other fighters' trainers. Uh, Sugar Hill, a great trainer, um, a very uh, candid and honest person, giving us his take of what happened on uh, September 28th. So before Anthony Durrell uh, fought David Benavides, he actually took on Avni Yildirim from Turkey, and that was actually a close fight as well, and it was actually involving a, a cut. Um, eventually, it was stopped and went to the scorecards because that cut was from an accidental 
headbutt. Um, Anthony Durrell won that fight. Avni Yildirim did not, but he was very upset because he felt like he was very competitive. So now, uh, Avni Yildirim felt like he should get the winner of Benavidez uh, and Durrell. And, and he was, um, as you'll hear in my interview, uh, signing to fight David Benavidez. That fight was coming together. Now, something that actually took place after my interview, which I didn't get a chance to uh, ask Avni and, and his uh, manager, a Met owner, about, was Avni Yildirim tested positive for two performance-enhancing drugs. Now, the investigation is still going by the WBC, so they're going to uh, look into this further. They're going to make an announcement in the near future, they said, so we're not sure exactly what's happening, if that's going to affect uh, Avni getting that shot at David Benavidez. I was texting with uh, Avni's promoter, and I asked him, hey, what, you know, uh, this happened after our interview, um, so, so what's going on? Is that fight still on? He said... And I quote, no, all good. He never did drugs or anything like that. The fight is in place. So far, we are waiting for a final decision by officials, but so far, all good. So, end quote. So, Avni Yildirim's team is uh, confident that nothing actually happened. They're, they're denying uh, the positive result there. And they are saying that Avni will go forward uh, with fighting David Benavidez next. So, here is my interview with Avni Yildirim and his promoter, who will serve as the translator. That is a Met owner. We're going to talk about that David Benavidez fight, and we're going to talk about what other fights on the horizon uh, Avni Yildirim would like to get. This is Karan Bhatia speaking to Avni Yildirim and a Met owner. You remember that Avni uh, fought Anthony Durrell in the last fight, and that was actually stopped due to a cut. Uh, Durrell won that fight. And, and Avni, I know you were ringside to see um, uh, David Benavidez versus Anthony Durrell. So what did you make of the fight sitting ringside there? I already, in my opinion, gave Durrell a very hard fight. I brought him to that position that when he fought Benavidez, he showed, he showed the same uh, performance with his open eyes, this time another eye. He was already hurt and punished for me. And Benavides was only there to finish it. What I was stopped to finish. I was, uh, they don't let me finish it. They stopped it. And, and I saw in Durrell a fighter who aim, only came for to make the money. I did not saw a guy who was there to beat Benavides. So you felt uh, Durrell was there for the payday, not, not to win. So, Ahmet, let me ask you this, because now that, that David Benavides did win the fight, um, Avni Yildirim's name has been thrown out as his opponent, um, but also Benavides has said that he may want to fight, uh, fight Caleb Plant. He's mentioned a couple other names. So how are you going to get uh, Avni that fight, Ahmed? The fight is already signed. The fight's already signed. So when is that fight going to be? It, it's uh, PBC doing the fight night. Uh, we wait a couple of weeks for announcement and uh, it was a part of the deal when we went to the WBC to Mexico and we had a claim against a decision that you had won against Avni in a fight. It was stopped and we thought we got, uh, we did not got what we all, what we got, what Avni made in the fight. In my opinion, he should win the fight. He got stopped through the referee and he got saved to officials. Now, the WBC made the ruling 
And after the ruling, they said, okay, there is to be an immediate rematch. And then PVC asked us, can we do Benavides between the well? And can we do then the winner? Yes, we made the paperwork, everything is signed, and we agreed, and therefore we came. Uh, we watched the fight, we were invited by PBC, we saw the fight, we got our ticket, everything was fine, and now we are only waiting for the date. So the, the fight, David Benavides versus Avni Yildirim is signed, They're, you're just looking for a date, so mm -hmm. that's, that's excellent. So my question now for Avni is, you, you said that uh, Benavidez versus Durrell was very similar to your fight. You said Benavidez is a true champion, um, but you don't see him as a skilled boxer. So why did you not see Benavidez as a skilled boxer? He is a true fighter, a true champion, but he's missing the amateur background, in my opinion. I'm speaking the name of Avni. He is missing the experience what amateur fighters, all the most amateur fighters made, and I believe that is what he's missing against me. And uh, Avni, do you feel that the, you know, he, he's a very tall fighter. He's uh, about almost six foot two and he, he fights in a tall way. Do you think the height difference is going to be a problem at all when you match up? He's not using his reach, in my opinion. He's coming forward. Therefore, I don't believe that will be not his really advantage. He's saying he's coming to fight. He's a brawler. Even if he's a tall guy, he's coming to make a fight and that is, that is benefiting me. He is same combination, same uh, same punch. Everything is same. Uh, one dimension fighter with good punches. He is very fast. He is very quick. He can, he can do good combinations. But always the same. So so I think my opinion, my advice to Avni, um, not to give Benavides too much. Um, he's the best. He's the best. <laughs> Benavides is the best. He's the best. Now he's the best. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense. You don't want to give away too much of the game plan. And that yes. makes sense. Let, let, me, let me ask you this, uh, Avni. You know, you and Anthony Durrell, before your fight, there was some bad blood there. You know, you guys were going back and forth. You didn't seem to like each other. And especially after the fight, you didn't seem to like each other. Do you? What is your relationship like with David Benavides? Do you like David Benavides? Are you friendly with him? What's the personal relationship like? So let me explain you. Benavides, they met each other. They met in LA. He has a Turkish conditional coach. There's uh, a nice guy. Uh, Benavides, we met each other. He was respectful to me, and I showed him my respect. So we are respect is big written here in boxing respect has to be there i see by benavides against my uh, performance some respect what i did against Birel, and i show him the same but we will fight each other so we have no bad blood there is no bad blood so in the, the first fight between uh, Avni and Durrell, you know, Avni said that the PBC uh, saved Durrell. So it was obviously a close fight. It was going back and forth. The cut opened, and uh, they announced Durrell the winner. So I'm just curious, you know, Avni or Ahmed, whoever wants to take this one, but how do you feel the PBC saved him? Do you think the scorecards were too much in favor of, of Durrell in that fight? I don't think, you know, people talk much. I don't see that PBC saved him. In my opinion, 
This said Benavides, not we. We didn't. He said this one day before his fight. I have this report, and she says. We never said this word. What we said is. Benavides said in a, uh, on a, on some boxing scene or whatever we read this, that PBC saved uh, Duel. We never used the word PBC in this. We said, I said especially, that the referee from Minneapolis, from the local judge and the doctor, stopped the fight too fast. Uh, and that looked like a saving. So, so I don't see... So, and he said, uh, and what we saw in the fight with Benavides and Duel, he did not let anything go to the judges or doctors, he finished it, because maybe he got afraid that the same shit can happen to him. But what we say is, PBC never saved him. I don't think that PBC cares for this so much, so, I, uh, because this is not, I don't believe that, I think, Local American judge in Minneapolis favored his guy. It's normal, can happen. So, because the referee was not from the WBC, and uh, and the doctor, I don't, I never saw him in WBC fight. So, I uh, we never used the word PBC for this, never. So, and uh, Avni, do you want uh, Anthony Durrell sometime in the future? Do you want another rematch, or are you oh, moved no, on no, from no, Anthony no, Durrell? I really don't care anymore for Durrell. He's finished. His performance in his last fight, I think there is nothing to turn back. We should look Caliplant. forward. Ben Avides, Kale Plant, Carlos Mez, Chris Eubank. For Avni, it's important Chris Eubank. He thinks on Chris Eubank. Because Durell is finished. Durell is finished, like Avni said. He's finished. You feel, you feel uh, Durell is finished, like you think he's going to retire, he's done with boxing? I think so, my opinion. And if he don't get a big payday, why should he fight? Right, and so and you, the fight that that Avni you really want is Chris Eubank the rematch, uh, the the yes. one that you lost in 2017. If I win the belt, after I win the belt, I will defend my title against Chris Eubank. And so just just give me your prediction on fighting David Benavidez. It's it's obviously going to be a very difficult fight, but are, do you feel that you can knock out David Benavidez? Do you think it's more of a 12-round decision? What, what's your prediction against Benavidez? I will win, win, win with knockout. Predicting the knockout against David Benavidez, that's that's going to be very difficult. So final message for, for Avni and Ahmed, both of you guys, what, what would be the final message to your fans, to Turkey, to all the supporters who are, who are looking forward to uh, seeing you in the ring again? I want to be the first Turkish world champion, I, and I, I'm trying to make me myself in boxing a legend, to do things what never before me anybody made. Because we know he's underdog. He comes as underdog, but in my opinion, he's a true warrior, and Benavides too, and one of guys has to be knocked out. I don't see a decision. It's, it's a decision, my friend. Both of them will have headaches after the fight. And, and do you enjoy that being the underdog? Uh, do you like that role of playing spoiler and, and, and being the underdog? I was used. I am used to be not favor. When I fought Duel, I was five to one underdog. And so nothing changed for me. 
Everybody knows everything. I don't care. Everything will be shown in the ring. They can't even give me no chance. I don't care. Benavides knows me. And that's his message. And and last question. Give me your final message for David Benavides. What what do you want to say to to David Benavides? Now it's time to meet a real opponent. All right, Avni Yildirim, a Met owner. Thank you so much for the time. Best of thank luck you to you. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing you fight David Benavidez soon. Thank you. There you have Avni Yildirim and his manager, uh, promoter, uh, who served as a translator and also gave his own thoughts. A Met owner. Now, the the one thing, like I said before uh, the interview, is that the positive test came to light actually after. Uh, we did our interview, so I was not able to ask Avni uh, specifically about it. But like I said, I, I texted with Amet after, and he said that they are denying it and that all things are uh, still on track for David Benavides to fight Avni Yildirim next. Let's see what happens with that. So my last guest here is trying to shake up the, the world of boxing. His name's Jay Chowdhury. He's working on a documentary called Dear Boxing. Um, he wants to bring boxing to the modern ages, right? To get it out of the dark ages to to help with uh, promotion and and things like that. And, and the reason I wanted to have Jay on was I want to make sure that, that what he's doing is to grow the sport. And that, that is what he's doing, right? He's, he's, he's trying to figure out ways to, to enhance the popularity uh, of boxing, get it into the mainstream audience more. And that's what I wanted to talk to uh, Jay about, how exactly he's going to go about doing that. So here's my conversation with Jay Chowdhury. This is Karan Bhatia of the Ask the Experts podcast, speaking to Jay Chowdhury. He's the co-founder of Break Media. He's an award-winning filmmaker who's been involved with sports for a long time. He's the recent winner of the Synopsis Media Award for Partnerships in Sports in 2019. So Jay, obviously you've been in sports for a long time, and then your work in sports brought you to boxing. And boxing is not like other sports for many reasons. Um, one of those reasons is in, in certain aspects, unfortunately, boxing is in the dark ages, right? And, and there's, mm-hmm. there's some uh, some lesser, there's some gray areas is, is the most PC way to say it. So what yeah. was your experience in terms of working in the sports world and then working in the boxing world and then some of the things that you saw there? Yeah, I think um, boxing specifically um, is a bullet hold sport where there's a lot of gray areas in it. Um, just working with professional athletes for the majority of my recent career has led me to boxing and it led me to understand how this sport is so independently run. Uh, and because of because of the uh, small ways that the boxing world is um, ran, and when I say small, it means in terms of how the other leagues are doing it, like NBA, NHL, and NFL, uh, there's no system in our sport. And because of the fact that there's no system, there's a lot of bullet holes. Um, I just feel like there's just a bunch of sanctioning bodies competing with one another. There's a bunch of promoters, egotistical promoters competing with one another. And these exact same promoters are now building egotistical fighters who are competing against one another. And it just kind of locked its um, sweet science, you know, in the marketing aspect of it, for sure. And, you know, that that it's an issue because we have these leagues, right, in boxing, yeah. the, these frag, you know, a fragmented sport is not is not good for anyone. And we have these leagues where if you see on uh, PBC broadcast, they uh, for a welterweight fight, 
there's no mention of Terrence Crawford, right? Because obviously yeah. he's with top rank in ESPN, and that's a major problem. Um, yeah. Or if you see on the zone, they're showing Canelo's possible uh, opponents, and Charlo's not mentioned, and that's that's not what we want as fans, right? We want we want yes, the best matchups. Right I mean. It's not like the FIFA, dude. I mean, we're not NBA, we're not NHL, we're not voting for teams. Fans are not voting for Team PBC or Team Top Rank or Team DAZN or Team uh, Golden Boy. We're we're Team, you know, fighters and we're Team boxers. Like everybody supports different NBA teams and stuff like that, but nobody is against, um, you know, uh, the individual themselves. You know, we we cheer for our home teams, we cheer for our home players, but the animosity that these promoters are building amongst fans is not healthy for the sport at all because it's leaving us divided. And this is one of the main reasons why fights are not being made because it's, as you said, it's Team Porter versus Team, uh, sorry, Team Spence versus Team Crawford. Um, and unless the fans are able to kind of unite and get together and root for the culture of boxing instead of just individual, um, I don't see the sport growing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I've said that for a long time. I said one of the things that we can do as fans is anytime we see these promoters or these fighters or anyone involved in sport, we as fans need to demand the matchups, right? So public demand finally brought together Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. It was many yeah. years too late. But yeah. we need to, you know, we need to say we want Errol Spence versus Terrence Crawford and we're not going to watch Errol Spence versus you know, subpar competition or Terrence Crawford versus subpar competition. We want to see these guys together because the fear, which which can happen, is these fights can over marinate and then they may not happen, or one guy loses, and then we we as fans lose out on that. Um, and, now and look, that, you just brought it such an amazing point there, Karn. You said yeah, you know, we as fans lose interest, and that's what sucks because people like you and I, the hardcore fans, boxing Twitter, for example. It's funny, you know, because I, I read all these tweets. Um, I see a lot of like, you know, one-sidedness, and I see a lot of fans talking about the business of boxing. And I just tweeted this out this morning. I said, you know, as I'm as I'm more and more researching this industry and the sports fans, it's like I see that they're more worried about not worried. They're more interested in learning about the business of boxing, how much views a pay-per-view did versus the next guy. And it's like, why are you guys so fucking curious about how much views a pay-per-view did? And then I started to understand why it's because fans are frustrated, man. And our hardcore fans are the ones that make boxing actually move because boxing has not hit the masses yet. And this is part of why I created break media group, because we bring boxing to the masses one fighter at a time by digitizing them, by producing content and web series and, um, you know, fresh new ways of engaging with fans. But besides that, boxing itself is such a niche sport, Garn, and there's only a few thousand people running the engine. I'm telling you, there's not hundreds of thousands, there's not millions, and there's a few thousand um, incredibly unique hardcore fans who are running the sport, but they're not enough to create the movements that we want, which is getting the fights that we need. That that's exactly it. We 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 need to get these matchups, and and I would even argue that there there are probably thousands, but there's probably even less in terms of the key opinion leaders, the the, the leaders who can actually move these mountains and, and work, with, work with other networks. There, it's it's an even smaller pool than that. But um, let me let me ask you one other thing before we talk about um the documentary that you're that you're working on is yes. the promotion in the sport and i've heard you talk about this and i think it's important we're we're a little bit in the dark ages in terms of boxing promotion you know these these press conferences um yes. that can kind of kind of go on for a bit with with people you know people from the promotion talking and then the owner yes. of the uh, arena talks and it kind of drags it down in energy when everyone just wants to hear from these fighters right so mm -hmm. what about marketing and promotion how do we get out of the dark ages in that man i just think that 
like straight up networks, promoters, and managers are doing shit all when it comes to promoting our fighters outside of the sport. Other than fight night and fight week, there is absolutely zero marketing and promotion done on behalf of our uh, fighters. There's absolutely zero interest in promoting these amazing top athletes um, in the world of worldwide sports and mass fan base connection. And this is part of the reason why Break Media Group was even created fundamentally because I wanted to bring boxing back to the masses. I wanted to bring boxing back to the forefront of American sports. There is such lack of storytelling, Karin, in our sport that it's freaking embarrassing to even tell people that you're a boxing fan uh, because they don't understand why you have so much passion for it. We just lack that storytelling. And I think, you know, I'm going back to even HBO days. I mean, that was, they were pretty much the only front runners in the sport. And, um, you know, the work that you've done, for example, with this HBO 24 7 series that you were on, like, you know, you and I talk plenty about how emotional storytelling connects with a fan and resonates with them. Um, and now it's like, where is it? There's zero. Um, and then when an opportunity comes, for example, Logan Paul versus KSI, where we're dealing with millions and millions of fans, what's the response? Oh, fuck this. This is not boxing, this is comedy. It's like, no, dude, this is a million eyeballs. It's up to boxing now to present itself in a way. We went to the party. We got to dress for the occasion and make sure that we leave with a couple of people who are attached to our hip. Um, and that's what's lacking in our sport, dude. I, I think, uh, you know, it's interesting with the KSI and Logan Paul. I think, and I've said this before, I think that is a uh, good event, a great event. And I think those YouTubers have actually earned the right to uh, have that event because they're bringing their teams of followers, A, which they've done yep. work to to maintain and, and to build. Like you don't just yes. get millions of followers, right? You have to put out content. You have to engage yes. with fans. You have to uh, yes. to resonate with fans. And, and so that takes work, number one. Number two is that they're not taking the opportunities uh, away from anyone else, right? They're fighting each other. So it's not like they're coming in and fighting, you know, the number one contender, number two contender. So exactly. they're, they're, they're building, they're bringing their own audience. Uh, they're not taking away opportunities. And that one of the biggest things, it's similar to what you just said in terms of the content that supports it. Every single day, they're picking up a camera in some form and creating a video about themselves training, promoting the event. They're, they're serving as that promotional vehicle. Yes. And that also takes a lot of work. Now, let um, me tell you something that's going to yeah. really piss off boxing fans sure this event ksi and logan paul is giving us an opportunity it's not the other way around we're actually going into their world which is filled with hundreds and thousand times more fans than boxing will ever have all right so they're giving us a chance to say hey yo here's your chance to come to our event okay mr eddie hearn and mr hardcore boxing fans and this mr mass american sports fan goers and see what you like now if even a couple of percent of people watching and i'm talking about the uh, the young generation, the 11, the 12, the 14-year-old kids, and get inspired by even one fight and say, hey, mom, dad, can you sign me up to the local boxing gym? That's what we need. We need more eyes on the sport. We need kids um, to get passionate and get enthusiastic about the sport so we can push it forward. So this is not by any means Matt Truman, Eddie giving Logan Paul KSI exposure. Dude, they got that. We should they, take they advantage of it. We, we should, and, and definitely uh, overall the credit to Eddie Hearn for, for taking, you know, quote-unquote risk or, or trying something new, just thinking outside of the box, right? That, that's, that, that's the type of thinking we need to get out of the dark ages. So let's talk about the project that you are working on that's definitely made a splash all through social media. Um, yes. Break Media put out the casting call for fans, and then uh, the, you know, the, the poster was, was uh, released, Dear Boxing. Um, and so it's kind of been teased in a way, but obviously this is a good opportunity for you to, to tell fans a little bit more about it. So what is Deer Boxing? 
so deer boxing was built on the um, on the very notion of why break media was built, which is, you know, bring boxing back to the masses one fighter at a time. But now it's going to be one documentary at a time. I feel like I've learned a lot in this sport, Garn. I've been in this sport long enough to understand not just how it works, but to see stuff behind the curtain because I've been in, um, you know, professional prize fighting training camps. I've seen how managers interact with each other. And most of all, Garn, my background from TV and film, I understand what happens behind the closed doors of networks uh, and why the pay-per-view model exists, why network TV is still here, even though majority of the American population is not even watching TV. I understand all this stuff. And so on this documentary, I've included some really, really specially cool people, uh, people from the network industry, people from the tech and data industry, people from the advertising industry. And we're all coming together just to kind of talk about, um, you know, uh, where did boxing stop? You know, at what point did it stop? And at what point did the fans stop giving a shit about it? And so we kind of dig deep into that. So we took the fans and we fast forwarded to 2019 and we um, created a really cool social experiment just to see how much um, the American sports fan goer knows about boxing. And that was a really, really eye opener for me, for sure. Yeah, no, no. And that's that's what I want to ask you about next, Jay. So I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, boxing has has a lot of fans that are very passionate about it, but it is a niche sport. And I think the issue is the mainstream only only tunes in once in a while. And, and our goal is to make it a mainstream sport. Right. So so you had the experiment that you did uh, with the big Sean Porter versus Errol Spence fight. That was a big uh, fight for the welterweight division that was on Fox. Um, it had the Fox machine behind it in terms of marketing uh, and promotion. So. What was the social experiment that, that you did for that fight? Well, first of all, did the numbers come out, Garn, about that pay-per-view? What's it sitting at now? I heard 250 or I heard 300. What's the final Yeah, number? I originally heard 300 on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, then the, re- the more recent one was in the 200 range. So I'm not sure where we landed. I'm guessing it's between cool. 200 and 300,000 uh, buys. All right, so let me just educate those listeners who are listening right now a little something really quick. A little quick education session here so the pay-per-view model for example it's built on two streams right it's built on the uh, domestic buys which is the people actually at home who are clicking i want to buy this fight but then uh, the majority of the buys are coming from the corporate buys and the corporate buys are made up of sports bars and restaurants all across america now here's this now here's a fun fact when a restaurant or bar buys the pay-per-view they're not just buying it once Legally, they have to buy it for the max capacity of how many people are in this uh, in the venue itself. So let's say Sam's Bar and Wings, they buy the pay-per-view. Like They got to buy it, first of all, at a premium price. It's not $79.99. It's more than that. And they got to multiply it by how many seats are in the house, right? And then that number gets calculated and then put on the final number that they broadcast to all of us the next week. So here's a, here's the question. Is everybody in Sam's, you know, sports bar and wings there to watch the fight? I don't think so, but we have to find out. So what we did, what we did was we sent fans all across America from, you know, from random cities across the country to go in during Spence and Porter to all the bars that was playing these fights and find out how many fans were actually there uh, to watch this fight. And the feedback that I got is staggering, dude. Like eight out of 10 people didn't know what the fuck was going on. So people were, uh, you know, and I have heard that I've heard, you know, I've talked to bar owners when they're playing a big fight and it's, they don't have the pay-per-view on. And then we say, Hey, you know, my group of friends who's there, who, who are boxing fans will say, Hey, we'll chip in, you know, we'll get the pay-per-view. It's 80 bucks. We'll split that between us. Um, then they say, no, I've heard, you know, it costs 
two thousand dollars plus for for a venue or a restaurant to play the fight. Yep. So that part is true. I I not I wasn't aware of the metrics part of it in terms of uh you know adding multiplying by how many seats. But let let's get into you. You had people out there asking people in these bars. Um, do you know who Sean Porter is? Do you know who Errol Spence is? Right? Is that that that's what you had? Well, that's ask. what we wanted to know. Because because if they're if they're publicly displaying, if the promoters and networks are you know measuring you know excuse my language cock sizes on Monday, saying we did three hundred and fifty thousand buys, were there really three hundred and fifty thousand people watching this fight? Were there really, or was that number just um, you know um, an extreme extreme um, exaggeration of how many seats were in the house that night? Um, so. We have an entire social media team who calculated all the data that night from Google Analytics, from Facebook mentions, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok mentions of Spence and Porter. We added it all up, and then we have the final number that's going to be projected on, obviously, the documentary itself. And I hope that fact fans actually wake up and see what's going on um, and see what's happening out there and see who's actually making up shit versus who's actually trying to take the sport seriously and just become a more educated fan. Right, right. And you will, you know, and just to play devil's advocate, one thing you do have to look at, um, it's probably smaller in scale, but if you look at something I used to do, have a lot of friends over to my house yep. to watch a fight. So that's one buy, right? But then I have more yep. eyeballs in that in that room. So that that also plays a factor as well. Yeah, of course, of course. That... We cover that as well. Of course. I mean, we, we, yes. we take care of everything on this dock, man. We take care of the illegal streamers. We take care of all the pizza parties that are happening on Saturday. And we're yeah, pretty we fair with the data too. Now, once again, Although this sounds like I'm, I'm going, this documentary is against like the pay-per-view model. It isn't because um, at the end of the day, um, boxing has become a bit of a pay-per-view specialty sport. And at the end of the day, I ask myself, you know, I find myself asking, why is that? I mean, um, if FIFA doesn't uh, require us to pay for the final games, if NBA Final Game 7 doesn't ask us to pay, if NHL Stanley Cups don't ask us to pay, if the Super Bowl doesn't ask us to pay, who the fuck is boxing to ask us to pay you know, 80 bucks for Danny Garcia versus Earl Spence. It just doesn't make sense to me. Right. So, and, and that's kind of to, to close it out. That's what I wanted to ask you is that your mission here is not to shame boxing in any way. It's no. not to, not to no. put down the sport. You want to bring up the sport, right? You want to make, make it more available to the masses, man. That's right. all it is. I'm a frustrated fan with a chip on its shoulder because of my experience in TV and film. That's what it is, dude. Like I'm a passionate boxing fan. I want to bring it back to the masses, but how can we do that when we're charging prices for events that the average fan doesn't care about? An average fan doesn't know who Danny Garcia or Spence is, man. Why are we hiding them behind the pay-per-view box? And it's like, bring it back to the masses. At the end of the day, who's actually watching these pay-per-views? It's just hardcore fans at the end of the day. And this is what the data will show you, that boxing is fueled by a couple of thousand hardcore boxing fans. It is not in the hands of the mainstream American sports fan, period. Well, let's hope that, you know, the ambitious plan to uh, get boxing out of the dark ages and, and get the matchups we want and build the stars that we want and, and really get our sport back in the mainstream. Let's let's hope that happens. And, and, I, and good luck to you on, on that pursuit. So, Jay, but just to close it out, tell people uh, where they can find you on, on social media and how they can connect with you. Yeah, for sure. I like I like everybody's support who's listening. Um, uh, and if you feel like you want to be part of the documentary from a fan perspective or an expert uh, perspective, feel free to drop me an email or just look me up on Twitter and Instagram. That's uh, producer underscore JC. Jay Chowdhury, co-founder of Break Media, award-winning producer, director, working on Dear Boxing, which hopes to shake up uh, the status quo in boxing. 
Jay, thank you so much for your time and hope to talk to you soon. All right, my brother. Thanks so much. That is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Ask the Experts. I want to thank all of my guests, John Molina, Marcos Viegas, Sugar Hill, Avni Yildirim, and Jay Chowdhury. I want to thank all these guys for being on the show. If you want to uh, follow my personal accounts on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, it's at Karan Bhatia, at C-U-R-R-A-N-B-H-A-T-I-A. That's on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you want to follow the podcast, it's on Twitter at A-T-E underscore podcast. Once again, that's A-T-E underscore podcast on Twitter. If you want to email the show, it's asktheexpertspod at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please go on iTunes, hit subscribe, leave a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to my guests for being on the show. Until next time, this is Karen Bhatia signing off for Ask the Experts.